Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour, your weekly podcast covering retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. And I'm Ravi Abbott. And we're now up to episode number 12 after a bit of a blinder last week. Oh, it's amazing. Episode 11 blew up. <laughs> yeah, well, if you missed last week's show, which uh, I doubt anyone did because it was actually our biggest episode to date, uh, we did a special on Amiga Piracy with Galahad from LSD and Fairlight, those old Amiga cracking groups. And it was by far our most listened to episode of the podcast. You did a bit of digging around and uh, looked where people were listening from. Yeah, I've kind of been looking at our stats and uh, I'm amazed we've got global listeners, uh, uh, an amazing global collection of geeks around the world. And uh, we've got listeners as far flung as, you know, Macedonia, Japan, Poland, United States, Sweden. This is amazing. Thailand, Bosnia, I see on here as well. So, uh, yeah, if you're one of our listeners all around the world, then we really do appreciate you listening. We're thinking maybe a bit of a world tour might be in order at some point. Oh, yeah, right? yeah, Kickstarter. <laughs> yeah, tax deductible, you know, expense. <laughs> so, yeah, thank you so much. If you're new listening to the show, by the way, it comes out every Friday. Uh, Ravi and I cover the week's big retro gaming and technology stories. And then at the end of every episode, for the last half an now, we hand over to a guest who is um, noteworthy from the world of retro gaming and tech. And this week, Ravi, oh, you pulled a big one out the bag. Yes, once again, we have the incredible Dave the Games Animal. Yes, it's Dave Perry from Games Master. You may remember him, the guy in the bandana and the uh, leather jacket. Who could forget Dave Perry? Yeah. You've been practicing that intro all day, haven't you? I have. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, if, if like us guys, you grew up in the 90s and used to watch uh, Games Master religiously on TV, there was nothing really like it, was there? No, and, uh, you know, Dave was probably one of the most memorable people from that, other than the host, Dominic Diamond. Yeah, there's been lots of stories throughout the years that maybe they didn't always get on the best and there was a bit of like underlying tension and... Uh, Dave was actually involved in Games Master right from the initial concept, even before Dominic got on board as well. Yeah, this so. guy, you know, he he edited and worked on 30 games magazines. Yeah. That's like, you know, even launching as well. So he's a massive name in the games industry. And this is a, a massive interview because he's not spoken about this that much. Yeah, so a rare insight into the inner workings and the inside story of Games Master and a lot of those old magazines that you probably grew up reading back in the old days, coming up in around 35 to 40 minutes from now. Before that, though, this week's big retro and technology stories, and we'll start with um, an update on the Microbit project, then. We've been covering this, haven't we? Explain what it is for people that may not have heard about it. Yeah, so um, the BBC Micro was initially a, a kind of computer system with... Was it Acorns Electronics? Yeah, Acorn Electronics. And uh, it was kind of set into all the schools to show kids how to do programming. Well, we know about the Raspberry Pi success, mm -hmm. the micro bit. It's rolling out in schools across the nation. Now, uh, this has been spearheaded by the BBC, this project, though, hasn't it? It's spearheaded by the BBC, and it's a really interesting thing. So I've just been looking at projects on the BBC Technology website, mm -hmm. and there's stuff like schools are sending microbits into the stratosphere with giant air balloons and measuring the temperature of what wow. it's like in space. And <laughs> they're also, they've got... You know, 1,009 microbits, they've put them all together and they've got little a LED cluster. displays. Yeah, oh, a cluster wow. and they're making these LED screens. So, Well, I'm looking at the, the companies that are involved here as well. Microsoft, Samsung, the ARM Foundation are on board with this as well. And um, it really is to teach kids coding. That's the essence of this project. But I've even been reading as well that, you know, unlike a Raspberry Pi where you need access to the physical machine, what these kids can do is leave their micro bit at school and actually access it over the internet and program it on like their mum and dad's laptop from oh, home. Oh, so, so they can go home. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh, that's amazing. So, uh, uh, yeah, it's it's uh, really good. It's teaching a whole new generation how to kind of create and how hardware actually works, yeah. which, you know, we don't want to lose that knowledge because we have loads of people with great computers 
they won't know anything to do when they're broken. (laughs) (laughs) Because I think that has been, you made a good point there, that kind of that has become a bit of a lost skill, I think, in the last couple of generations. Yeah, totally. It's like, you know, they had to start doing lessons. uh, In the driving lessons, they had to start showing how to change tyres and Mm. how to uh, check the oil because people were losing these skills. So this is kind of reintroducing it. Yeah, when you buy a a Dell laptop from PC World, they don't teach you how to uh, change your RAM and everything. (laughs) (laughs) But that said, though, do you do uh, tech support for your friends and family? I am the tech support for my friends and family, yes. I'm also tech support for the office, which is quite bad because we've got a tech company anyway, <laughs> but they're, uh, yeah, often busy. Well, I got my, my auntie actually, um, F, I don't know why, I need to, I think I'm going to get her a Chromebook because... The they're good, of, they're good for well, non-techies. Literally you know. all she does, she does like books holidays, bit of email and all that, but, you know, every probably two or three months I get a phone call like, you know, the computer's running slow again or, you know, something stopped working on it, can you have a look? And I'll dial in on TeamViewer. And the other day, I think there was 96 infections when oh I run that M-BAM on it. I'm like, what are you doing on this machine? <laughs> well, that's the, that's the thing. You always get this, oh, my son's good with computers. Yeah, so, yeah. You know, no, I'm not. Play dumb. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, it's going to be a whole new generation of those now with uh, this uh, BBC project. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> what kids and, you can call uh, on when your computer breaks. Yeah, so hopefully we won't be getting high-end repairmen in the future. <laughs> we'll be getting some uh, kids wanting to learn. Now, this is a headline I never thought that I'd see. Steven Spielberg and the Movie Foundation working with Sean Parker, the founder of Napster. Yes, so we we kind of like old technology and old tech mm-hmm. and they're talking about delivering movies directly to your home as soon as they're released on the day of cinema release to expand audiences. Now, this is interesting because we were talking about piracy yesterday. Yeah. Uh, well, last episode and... Galahad said to us, you know, the Oscars is the greatest period of time because everything's all released on the day. All the screeners get put online. All the screeners are put online and released. So I don't see what's going to stop someone ripping it. Nothing. Putting them online. Nothing. This is going to, I think it's going to completely wreck it. Well, you think, you know, they often say, I mean, when was the last time you went to the cinema? Last time I went to the cinema was to see Star Wars, the 3D. Yeah. I didn't even see that. I'm not a big Star Wars guy, but I honestly can't remember. It must have been like maybe last summer. So you're probably talking about good eight months ago. Last yeah, and that was a good. That was a good twenty quid yeah, or something. You know, it's very that. expensive. And they're always complaining that the cinema industry is dying. But then you think, you know, Spielberg's behind this, and J.J. Abrams, yeah. and you know, these are the big guys from Hollywood. But this kind of sounds like they're trying to put the nail in the in the cinema experiences. It's strange. Maybe, maybe they think that you know these kind of online streaming services and stuff are the way to go and maybe looking at stuff like um what was it the interview you know when that was banned and that was released online that had still had a massive kind of box office success but i think that was due to the publicity they had at the time but this is very interesting it says you know it'll be available on a $150 set-top box mm-hmm. that will be fitted with anti-piracy technology. Oh, yeah, there's no way around any of that. Yeah, yeah. So as talking <laughs> to Galahad last week, we all know that anti-piracy technology is amazingly efficient. If you can watch it on a screen, you yeah. can record it and, you know, re-encode yeah. it. But I think the angle that we found most interesting in this is you never thought you'd see the headline that Sean Parker, the founder of Napster, would be working directly with the... Well, it's strange, Hollywood. isn't it? Because when Napster first came out, he was seen as this evil kind of you know, guy that no one would deal with and then help Zuckerberg with yeah. Facebook and now he's kind of, I don't know, maybe seen a bit legit now. <laughs> well, obviously Napster got turned into a, you know, it's still going today, it's a legal music streaming company. But, you know, whatever your opinion is, and I think, you know, we mentioned last week that piracy is a part of culture. 
But I think you've got Napster to thank for the MP3 revolution taking off. It was opening Pandora's box, wasn't it? Yeah, well, before that, you know, I think the the music industry, if Napster hadn't come along, you remember before that, you'd go and buy a CD album, it was 18 quid. Mm. And look at iTunes now as well. iTunes was tiny then. Mm -hmm. Well, it wasn't around then when Napster was Now it's absolutely massive. People are paying for it and... It's integrated with the sales charts of, uh, you know, commercial. That is it, isn't it? Really? So I, is... I think something like ninety-eight percent of music sales are digital. So, do you there, think? Yeah. Do you think iTunes has probably taken over the uh, the uh, singles market? Oh, absolutely, yeah. But it's like um... so. Maybe that's also helped with you know making him seem. Well, more, I think you more know, legit. I'd, iTunes probably wouldn't have come along with that Napster, or at least it would have been a lot later. Yeah, yeah, the, the model wouldn't it? have been so yeah. strong, I think. So, uh, say what you like about Sean Parker, though, but I mean, do, do you remember the first time you experienced Napster? Yeah, actually, um, <laughs> it was kind of crazy. We were in this computer club, and uh, we'd all turn up with our computers, mm-hmm. and my mate just plugged mine in. And then suddenly I was receiving thousands upon thousands of MP3s and I was like, what the hell is this? Oh my God, all this music. And uh, I think we'd we'd be able to download around three tracks a night. Yeah. <laughs> yeah it was like, incredibly yeah. slow. 128 KBS MP3. And like a three-minute song took about so, 25 minutes. So sometimes you'd have to time it as well because every two hours our phone would disconnect. Oh, were you on NTL? Yeah, you? So, yeah, so yeah. You, had to, you had to like time it. So when you were downloading, the download would finish before the disconnect, because if it disconnected, you had to restart the whole download. Did it not resume? No, no no resuming in the early days. But it digs. I used to be a big CD singles buyer, Um, you know, back in my teenage years. I'd always go into like Our Price and Virgin Megastore and all that. And I get a stack of CD singles like this. And then I think I was at college when like Napster first came around and... Yeah, a mate of mine showed me it, and I was like, "What? Well, you know, you had it open on one of the computers. I was like, what's this thing here? And I'd, I'd never really used MP3 before that either. And it was around the time I'd just got a PC, I think. My mum got me like a, I think it was like a Pentium 2 or something, or Pentium 3 maybe. Yeah, I loaded up Winamp, and I, it was really cool not having to put a CD in the drive. And it was just getting that big, fat Winamp list that took like I 20 Winamp, minutes yeah, to yeah, lose. I love Winamp. Yeah. It's not my favourite music player. but uh, so It really go. kicks the llama's ass. <laughs> <laughs> it does indeed. So there you go, Sean Parker, gone full circle, and now... Uh, a core part of Hollywood, it seems. Yes. So he's, a, he's in the industry. Interesting. Who'd have thought that would have ever happened? That's it. <laughs> now, this blew my mind. Resident Evil is 20 years old. It's crazy. Absolutely crazy. Dude, man. we're getting old. Do, do you remember uh, playing Resident Evil for the first I time? I do. My, my brother had a PS1. I always found it quite hard to play. Was this Resi 2? No, the original. The original, the original yeah. one, yeah. It's a tank controls, isn't it? Yeah. Which, even at the time, I found them a bit unintuitive. And I actually got the, the Resident Evil pack for the PS4 recently. And I've been, the, the first game you can actually, it's obviously an HD remake of the first Resident Evil game, but there's kind of two options you can play with the old tank controls or a modern analog. I, um, I just remember the doors opening and the yeah. creaky. Yeah. It was, it was a... really the first horror game I remember playing. I think, I don't know if Silent Hill was out before it or after it. Or maybe that was after it, but... Well, actually, I do remember Seventh Guest and Alone in the Dark and all that, so I guess maybe but that's, that... that's not quite accurate, but it's um, it's the first kind of game I remember where you walk around a corner and somebody jump out and you like, Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like that, S- Silent Hill shut me up and then Resident yeah. Evil just continued to scare me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> kind of, uh, yeah, it's really good and I kind of like the the dark vibe of it, but also they managed to maintain that kind of Japanese vibe yeah well, it's you been... don't really get many japanese zombie things i don't know maybe there's loads but... <laughs> <laughs> well not really mainstream like this no, though. No. i mean it's been going for 20 years this franchise and you know there's still resident evil games coming out all the time now and uh, it's interesting there's a list here on um, avclub.com we're looking at they've rated the best and worst 
of the series. And I think I have to agree with them. I reckon the worst one was Resident Evil 6. I, I, I haven't even been that far. I yeah. saw one which was based in Africa, which was very questionable. Was that the one? Um, was that five, was it? Yeah, yeah. It was in the day as well, wasn't it? When there started? was lots of uh, uh, questions about um, kind of racism in that one. Okay. And it was uh, quite controversial. But... Um, but I remember I, I played that one on the 360, the first week. I think it was five that came out. And I remember the thing that really kind of, well, I didn't get through the whole game. I kind of lost interest in it. But it was just all set in the day and it kind of lost its... Um, Resident yeah. Evil to me is nighttime. It's creepy. Well, Resi 2 for yeah. me it was the complete amazing one. And also like, you know, dogs... Mm-hmm. Like dogs covered in blood and stuff like that. That's what Resi's about. It's... Yeah, like Codename Veronica on the Dreamcast, that was a great one as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah that was really good. My um, mate actually does Resident Evil speedruns oh, really? on YouTube, so he's just obsessed with, you know, the old emulators and trying to do it as fast as possible. How, how quickly can he do it then? Oh, God knows, but there's <laughs> records for every single Resi run, you know. Yeah, speedrunning's impressive, but I'm not that good at games. I died, you know, I died like, Every few minutes. Well, that's it. Go. You know, you're half an hour in and then you do one mistake wrong and you've ruined yeah. the whole speed run. Oh, dude, <laughs> you know? you're going to start again. <laughs> yeah. Who's got time for that? Yeah, that's it. <laughs> now, uh, what do you think of this article then? This is on the drum and uh, this reckons that touchscreen devices are going to become retro to the younger generation in the age of voice control commands and AI. This is very interesting because we've got, at work, we've got this kind of giant tv in mm-hmm. the reception i work at an art gallery yeah and it displays the events going on at the art and you'll be amazed at the amount of little babies that run up there and just start slapping it like thinking it's touchscreen thinking it's wow. touchscreen and trying to see it's interactive and these are toddlers man mm-hmm. <laughs> this is like standard for them well i've got cousins <laughs> that have got like um you know toddlers like young kids have got like nieces and nephews but then you give them an iPad and they know what to do with it straight away. And I remember one of my cousins telling me that like, they put a book or a magazine down in front of the kids and they started thinking it was a touchscreen like a book, <laughs> yeah. trying to use it. So, well, this is saying though, isn't it? This is basically saying that touchscreen is going to become obsolete. So it's saying that voice is going to take over voice control commands, which let's be fair, I mean, voice control commands have been around a long time, but it's still crap. I've heard that this, Amazon, is it Amazon Echo? Yeah, I've not tried it. That's supposed to be good, but... It's always been crap. Yeah, I remember my mate used to have it on his phone years ago when it first came out, voice commands, and we'd always try to get it to ring a certain number and it would come out with hilarious other options. And, you know, it's well, you look never... at like, even like Siri on the iPhone. I mean, I use Siri for basic stuff, but the amount of times you've got to say it over and over again. Um, for example, listen to this. Hang on. Siri, beatbox. Here's one I've been practicing boots and cats and boots and cats and boots and cats and boots and cats and boots. I could do this all day. Cats and boots and 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 cats. That's all I used to refer to. So, actually, this reminds me of a time when me and Dan were coming home drunk from the city centre in a taxi cab. Oh, we were comparing. And I had Cortana and you had Siri, and we were doing like a Cortana Siri battle and uh, I think the taxi driver must have thought we were nutters <laughs> bunch of nerds in the back of the car yeah. but um, even like I, I think okay voice is going to improve but it has been around for a long time I remember you know, the earliest days of it I, I was actually watching I mentioned on the show before that I've been watching all the old Bad Influence and Games Master episodes yeah. on uh, YouTube and there was a demo that Andy Crane did on um, Bad Influence in about 92, 93 where he's showing some voice recognition software on an old like 386 PC but we have come in a long way in 20 years, but then it only recognised your voice and you had to train it beforehand to hear the mm. commands that you'd say. Now an iPhone or, you know, an Xbox, you know, Connect can 
understand anybody in essence, you know, although I've heard stories that apparently can't understand like Scottish accents and that kind of thing. But, but... It's, it's still the same with typing as well. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, not typing, Dictation. handwriting. Yeah, okay, yeah. When you're doing handwriting, to, you know, with the Apple Newton, I remember them doing the thing that on that awful. bad influence <laughs> and it looks awful. But, you know, all these technologies haven't made it yet, yeah. apart from touch, which is... Pretty perfect, I think. Well, I think, you know, the reason touch took off is because it's the basic human instinct is to reach out and touch something, isn't mm. it? And I think, you know, this article here is saying that it's going to become obsolete in the age of voice commands. I've got an Xbox One Connect, and it's awful. You know, literally, you've got to... They, they made all this big hoo-ha about it going to be, like, you know, much improved over the 360. I use it to turn my, 360, uh, my Xbox One off and on, <laughs> if it works. You know what I mean? Sometimes it hears yeah. itself and turns itself off. Oh, God. But you literally, I come in the room, you'd be like, Xbox on. Xbox on, Xbox on, then it'll come on eventually. And you think, I can just get over and press the bloody button, you know, I'm quick this. So voice is definitely not there as far as I'm concerned yet. I remember, I remember we used to have old touch screens years ago. Mm-hmm. Before multi-touch. Yeah, and you'd yeah. have to like punch the screen to get any commands. We, we, we had them in here, like um, one of these screens was touching, like literally, you press on the screen, it'd be like about three three inches from where your finger is on the screen, the pointed move. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I'm not convinced that touch is going to fade away uh, anytime soon, I've got to admit. No. Well, we've got another story here, which is the Humble Bundle strategy package has been launched. Now, this is Sega. Um, yeah. What is Humble Bundle then, for those that have known? Humble Bundle has been going on for a long time, and this is a really cheap way to get games. Lots of games off Steam. So what it is, is they do these little bundles. They'll have, like, Retro Bundle, they'll have Platformers Bundle, or they have from different companies. And the idea is they're giving these out at a reduced rate mm. so that they can earn money for charities. Okay. So you, you, you're you encouraged to donate more, but mm-hmm. you can pay one pa- one dollar. Well, so. it's crazy. You know, you said you can donate one one dollar, but uh, this new um, the Sega strategy pack here, I reckon it's worth around $379 if you bought the whole yeah, thing Yeah, that's, so. that's, that's the crazy thing. So, you know, even if you donate one dollar for charity and one mm. for there you're still doing your bit and you're receiving all yeah, of these yeah. games you know and even like you know it's got even the classic sega stuff on here as well stuff like shining force uh, one and two um columns yeah columns yeah columns, you know yes yeah, so, i mean this is awesome isn't it so, so you basically purchase this you get all the steam keys yeah and they all just arrive in your steam account and then you redeem them all and boom and you're you doing know? something for a good cause yeah totally and my steam library it's massive thanks to the Humble Pack. Like... <laughs> well, we're recording this um, just before the Easter Bank holiday weekend, so if you've got a bit of time over the weekend, this will uh, keep you busy for an hour Oh, or definitely. Two. Yeah, Total War. Recommend yeah. it. Very good games. Lock yourself in the room. Get away from the missus for a bit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, I got a new uh, sexy bit of kit in the post last week. Oh, what was it? The Vampire 2. Oh, Dan, you're making me jealous. <laughs> <laughs> now, if you haven't heard of this, um, this is the fastest classic Amiga accelerator, I think, pretty much, isn't it? Apart yeah, from it, the it overclocked light. Turns it into the fastest Amiga. Yeah. yeah. So, and this is for the lowest end Amiga, actually, it's for the Amiga 600. And um, there's a couple of guys who are working on this and they're making all these by hand. I got mine off a, a chap called uh, Kipper 2K, um, very talented Amiga engineer. Just, but- you know, it's all does in his spare time. And um, I ordered mine before Christmas and it finally turned up. And he put a serial number on every one. So I think mine's number 398. So you imagine he's made all these by hand in that time. So that's crazy, amazing. man. <laughs> and what this gives you, though, is so you put it in. I think it's got 128 megabytes of RAM on it. It's got um, a really fast FPGA CPU that emulates um, a 68040. And I've got, you know, we, we, we talked about um, upgrading our Amiga 4000s. My A4000's got an 060 in it now. Yeah. And uh, I think it worked out at something like four times the speed of my, my Amiga 4000 now. 
it's it, it flies. It's yeah. crazy. All these kind of old titles that I've been banging stuff together in accelerators to try and get running. Yeah. You can get this cheap one, yeah. stick it in there, and it just flies. Well, it's even got HDMI out on it as well. And you can run it in like, you know, 24-bit RTG modes and all that. And I mean, all right, I've seen a lot of guys on the forums going, well, what are you going to do? You're going to play like, you know, Cheat Nukem 3D on Amiga 600. Why not just play it on a PC? Thing is, though, this thing here... It's only, I think it was about 145 euros, including delivery and everything. So it's quite reasonably priced. But it's just cool. It's just cool. Yeah. And also, the fact that they've started on the 600 is mm-hmm. great. Because, frankly, I wanted to chuck my 600 in the bin. Because it's it, it, before this... Yeah, there wasn't anything for it, was there? There wasn't anything yeah. for this. There wasn't even a... Was there an Indivision for it? I there? think there was, but yeah, it was like... I, th- I think you had to remove your floppy drive or something yeah, to put it in. but now they're saying also what they can do is they can upgrade the graphics architecture on it. Yeah. So ECS, which is the enhanced chipset or... That's was, what's on there already, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, which was on there already. They can put an AGA on it. Yeah. Them. Oh, my God. Well, apparently the next one is going to be the Amiga 500. Um, that's the next platform they're going to be working on with the 1200 coming after that, which makes sense because they're the most popular models. Now, um, I'm after one of these, and I've already sent them two emails. It's been about two, three months. I think it's probably going to be a year to yeah. get this, so well, dude, you're very I, lucky, Dan. I've sent him about two emails, and like he'll reply normally after about a month or something. But um, there's a, a guy actually messaged me on Facebook, and he said, I, I ordered mine last July, and he still hasn't got it yet. So Have you seen the waiting list? I haven't looked at it, no. It's, <laughs> it's massive. It's like literally the whole community. Yeah. <laughs> like... well, dude, I mean, he, he, he said he's already sold over 500 of these, I think. I was looking on the forums, which wow. um, I think people have been buying Amiga 600s just for this board. So you know what needs to come next? The remade Amiga in the... Yeah, you, well, you can do it all in FPGA. Yeah. So it's crazy that I think FPGA is for old machines. I mean, there has been a, an argument I've been seeing raging in the forums and that people going, oh, it's not really an Amiga, is it? If you just, you know, you're not using any of the original components. And yeah, I suppose there is a bit of that, but it's not really emulation, is it? You're just kind of simulating it more, I guess. Yeah, but also you're you're making it more compatible with the stuff you've got at your home. So you yeah. know HDMI out. Mm-hmm. Of course, it's not. I mean, it wasn't there back then. You know, yeah. and you're still using <laughs> the floppy drive, the same keyboard. Yeah, yeah. You're still yeah. using the ports on the back, the, joy- the joystick ports, and the mouse. And... I think I think there's there's a lot of people in the camp that say this is a real hardware, especially in the Amiga camp. Purest but, guys. But then you have them on every level. They say, yeah, dude, oh. if, if it's not a 1.2 Kickstarter Amiga 500, it's not a proper Amiga. Yeah, exactly, it, exactly. And I'm sure that happens with Nintendo. Yeah, if yeah. it hasn't got a cartridge, it's not the same. Yeah, or yeah. if it's you know, well, I've seen yeah. Everdrive's ruined game collecting I was reading the other day and it's like well dude you know, not all of us want to have like you know pay 600 quid for a sealed copy <laughs> yeah, you know of this I mean? yeah, yeah. so I think it is just the fact that it's so cheap and I think you know I've been thinking about this before you had um, there was a reason to buy Migra accelerator cards if you want to do WHD load, for example, mm. you need a bit of extra memory. And you the fact want to watch demos and stuff. Yeah, as well, I mean, yeah. some of them require you know slightly higher specs, but you look at even stuff like the O30 accelerators; they're about the same price as totally, this thing. Totally, totally. So you may as well just buy one of these. This has got everything in it as yeah. well, and know. it's going to get upgraded. So the software core in it can be upgraded just by downloading a file and putting. Yeah, it and it won't go hot and. You yeah, know, it, runs, it runs cool, dude. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I put my finger on it after it's been on like an hour, like barely warm. Wow. Yeah. So, uh, well, uh, I'll be doing a YouTube review. I I think, I think I've actually been hounded a bit more than uh, the guys that are making the board have recently. I, I saw a meme that started with a, a, a picture of a skeleton 
saying waiting for Dan's <laughs> review. The yeah. thing is, I did. There's so much to set up because you want to demo it properly. You know. Yeah. What I mean? Well, so, now you're an Amiga celebrity. It's like, oh well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I can't you leave have the house to keep now, up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sign these autographs. They want know. you 24 hours a day. Signing boing balls when I leave the house. <laughs> that sounds wrong. Yeah, meant to. <laughs> right then. So uh, Nintendo news now. Apparently, Nintendo were going to be killing off the Wii U this year. I was reading the other day. Oh. Um, although they've denied it since. So, <laughs> They've denied it since. Oh, okay. Well, this is actually, it's, it's a rumour that came out in a Japanese um, well, uh, Japanese newspaper it was in called uh, Nikkei, I think I pronounced that right. Um, it was a rumour that apparently came from within Nintendo saying that they're going to be, um, obviously, they're making way for the NX, mm. the next project. Um, but a Nintendo spokesperson has come along to um, a website and basically says, this isn't an announcement from our company. From the next quarter and thereafter, the Wii U is scheduled to continue. So it says the next quarter and thereafter. I mean, that could be till the end of this year. But you think they've got to wind up production of it. I've never known Nintendo to keep two consoles on the market at the same time, really. No, I've never known them. They've said here this um, this Japanese paper has got a very good track record with Nintendo rumors are pretty much always on the ball. But I imagine the reason they have to deny this, otherwise... They're going to do a Sega. You remember like Sega did, the Saturn's not our future? Yeah. And no one buys it for like, you know, until the new one comes out. Yeah, it's uh, it's kind of crazy because I remember when I went to buy the, the, the my first console mm-hmm. and uh, I had the choice, the Amiga CD32, yeah. which was being produced, the PlayStation by Sony, and SNES, which was still being produced. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, I don't know, is a Wii U user? Mm-hmm. <laughs> How do you feel <laughs> about it? I said that after a few drinks. Yeah. <laughs> Well, you know, I, I think we, we've covered the Wii U on the show in the past. And even though I did buy a Wii U and, um, you know, there are a, few, a lot of games on there I really like, I do admit that I, it is a dead duck. It's It's been their biggest flop since Virtual Boy, you know what I mean? But, but like, do you feel kind of let down that not really. you've purchased this console and there's not going to be new stuff coming out? I think there's still great games on there and games that I haven't really, you know, fully explored yet. I've still got games that I've only played a few minutes of. And I think there will be new releases, at least for the rest of this year. I, I actually got, I, I didn't buy my Wii U new, I actually got it used from CEX. I think I only paid about 150 quid for it, so it wasn't that bad. And I think I've got my value out of it. And to be fair, I think I probably expected them to discontinue it sooner than now, to be fair, because it's done so badly. Yeah, I've, um, I've literally seen nothing. It's it's done really badly. <laughs> but that's <they're saying, laughs> like, well, know, there's also, the only one I've played on is yours, drunk. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I know one of the guys who's got one, and like I, I played a few games on his house, and that was the reason I bought one. It is a fun system, and it kind of brings back that you know you're playing like Super Smash Brothers and all that, mm. and even like Mario Kart Eight, which is amazing. Sitting there having a few friends around, you can do the you know four players on the screen at once. Yeah, yeah. And we've talked about it's loads on the show. Sitting down having local yeah, multiplayer yeah. games over a few drinks, it's awesome. And for me, the Wii U is like kind of my part console when I got people around I think just the brand was totally wrong they should never have called it a Wii yeah they should have totally disconnected with yeah. the uh, the Wii because yeah. it was a total different beast yeah I mean so. you know they tried to ride on the success of the their biggest system but it's just a different market isn't it yeah uh, speaking of old school Nintendo systems I thought this is quite interesting I saw an article on Reddit in the uh, retro gaming sub um, and this guy found that Nintendo of Japan have still got their website for the N64 up. <laughs> so you can look at it. It's an old um, mid-90s pre-CSS website, all in Japanese. So, you know, I can't understand any of it. But it is. It's actually the original Nintendo Corporation website. showed all the controllers and stuff, and you can click and look at all the titles and things on here as well. And, and we it's should kind of give this older... link to Dave Perry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Dave's not a fan of the N64. You'll find out why in just a bit. Yeah. Uh, but also, I mean, some of the other guys on Reddit have looked through. And the fan that there also there are still websites up for the, the Virtual Boys website still up. Oh wow! In Japan, uh, the Game Boy, the Super Famicom's website still exists. So for some reason, they're still you know keeping these old pages hosted on their server, and they've never got around to taking them down. 
They've actually got a name, haven't they? A nickname. I think it's called Cobweb Sites. Cobweb Sites. <laughs> yeah, so that's wicked. Stuff that's online that never gets updated. So if you want to have a look at these old uh, Nintendo websites, you know, well, uh, they've been up for like, what, nearly 20 years now. So I'd imagine they're going to hang around a bit longer. We'll pop a link in the show notes. Uh, a new Commodore 64 title now. Um, this is quite oh. interesting. We were talking about um, LucasArts and LucasFilms games last week, weren't we? Yeah, yeah. We were talking about um, Scum VM. Yeah, and Day the Tentacle that's got a reboot recently in HD. This is kind of not an HD upgrade. This is a, a degrade, if you like. What they've actually done is they've ported Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade to the Commodore 64. They've downported yeah, it. They then. Yeah, yeah. And this is awesome. Now, this has kind of been going on for a while. It was, it was only released on the 16-bit platforms. Um, but looking at it here, there's actually a YouTube video where you can um, watch a bit of the work in progress. I don't think it's quite out yet. But, you know, you use a joystick or the cursor keys to move the cursor. And they've got all the commands there, you know, the look at, the push, open, close. It is point-and-click adventure. And the graphics actually look really good. This looks wicked. Yeah, for the Commodore 64. <laughs> yeah. I think, you know, they reckon it's going to be out hopefully this summer. Um, but I, it's just going to be massive, I think. I'd like to see them do more stuff. And I th- you know, I think the Commodore 64 could do a decent version of um, the first Monkey Island, for example. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. This, this is a really cool way of doing it because it, it does look... They've, they've managed to translate the vibe of uh, The Last Crusade. Well, know? a lot of those kind of early 16-bit titles, you know, they, they weren't quite taking advantage of the new graphical powers of the systems anyway, were they? A lot of these. No. So it's just cool to see these games get imported to the 64, I think. So as somebody who's got a 64, it's always nice to see new software. Now, a bit of a light heart, well, not light-hearted for the guy in question. Story to finish on this week. Have you got any um, old VHS tapes that you never got round to returning, Ravi? Uh, my dad, once, on a particularly sunny day went to uh, return a VHS tape and put it on the dashboard of the car and it actually melted. <laughs> and then we had to take the melted cassette into the uh, shop. Was that frowned upon, was it? <laughs> uh, it well, it was a bit of a, a crap video shop, so we didn't mind. <laughs> it was, I think we got fined a little bit, but that was Well, it. there's a story here, a fellow called James Myers um, in America, and he rented out a VHS tape from a rental store um, back in 2002. Turns out he forgot to return the tape. DVD was kind of coming in then, maybe, you know. He thought, oh, forget it, you know. Turns out, 14 years down the line, he was just doing, doing errands one day, and the police pull him over by the side of a road and arrest him. <laughs> and he's like, what's going on here? So they're trying to find him. Basically, the, the, the people that own this video shop that's no longer around obviously check their old records and be like, no, we, didn't, we never got that back, did we? They've got the police to go and arrest this guy, put out a warrant for his arrest. What? There's a court case coming up, and he's actually going to court over this. <laughs> And there could be a fine of up to $200, apparently, for not returning this tape 14 years ago. What if he buys the DVD for 25p off eBay or the VHS? Guess what the film is? What? Freddy Got Fingered. (laughs) A Tom Green one. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, he he actually did a lot of vlogging it on um, YouTube. So this morning I get stopped by Concord, North Carolina's finest Concord Police Department. Two really nice officers. Officer... I won't say their names. They're cool. They were cool to me, so I'll admit their names. But pulls up behind me, hits the blue lights on the way to bring my daughter to school. The guy brings me to the back of the car, and he goes, Sir, I don't know how to tell you this, but there's a warrant for your arrest from 2002. Apparently, you rented a movie, Freddy Got Fingered, (laughs) and you never returned it. So So there's a civil suit that they process as a criminal case, and we're here to take you to jail. Oh Over Freddy Got Finger, man. That is that is absolutely crazy. The past coming back to haunt you. Thank God it wasn't Blockbuster. I'm just thinking, man. You know, my, my local Blockbuster went bank. You know, 
obviously when they all closed down, I'm thinking, do they have any games or anything left over? <laughs> I've probably well, got loads, have yeah. have a look, mate, yeah. <laughs> check your VHS collections, guys. Yeah, check the attic. <laughs> yeah, and talking of video, we have coming up next... Yes, well, this week's special guest. Now, for anyone that loved uh, gaming television back in the day, I think it's fair to say probably the greatest video games programme of all time. Well, Dave was telling us, you know, he's saying he's been on... He was on TV four nights a week. Yeah, yeah. You know, he was on Sky. Mm-hmm. He was on Channel 4. He was in games magazines everywhere. This guy was the the face of UK gaming for a while. He was a machine. He was a machine. <laughs> he was an animal. <laughs> so uh, thank you so much for checking out this week's episode of The Retro Hour. We'll be back next Friday. Get us from the website, theretrohour.com, iTunes, your favourite podcast client, YouTube, all of the above. And we'll hand you over to this week's special guest, Dave Perry. So welcome to the Retro Hour, Dave. We thought we'd start by asking what your first gaming experience was. Gaming experience? It's hard to remember. Probably somewhere the two that stick to mind would be uh, probably Space Invaders down at the local ice rink or going way back, something like an, an old Atari machine, the old cartridge machine. You know, I used to have a friend that used to have that. And we used to go around there and be amazed that we could play Centipede and things like that in his house. And uh, he had an old Sinclair and we used to sit on there and try and program like you'd spend all night trying to get your name to come up on the screen but uh, that was that was how it all began and what was the first system that you owned yourself then first system i owned myself was had a 64 uh, a commodore 64 not, not a nintendo 64 and um and then what after that uh, th- there was a few but my my favorite system the one that actually locked me into it all in the end was a commodore amiga that was my favorite machine of all that was my uh, luxury purchase um, that really got me into um, you know, ma- making a profession out of gaming. So do you remember when you went from the 8-bit days to seeing the Amiga for the first time then? Was that quite a, quite a big step for you? Yeah, it was. Um, you know, we were playing on, um, we, had, we all had Spectrums and 64s and various Binatone Pong machines and that that came out. And um, yeah, I went away to uh, art school and... You know, dur- during those times, you know, desktop publishing was just coming in, and uh, we were getting into graphics. And uh, I wanted a I wanted a computer at home, but the early Mac XE- SE machines were just very, very, very expensive and very cost prohibitive. And so I was working in a nightclub, and uh, one of the bouncers was doing a little bit of computer teching on the side, and he recommended this new Commodore Amiga. And uh, he said, you know, they had a lot of desktop publishing programs on it and it would uh, it was going to rival the Mac. So um, there you go. Be careful what advice you take. So I, I, I spent all my savings on this Commodore Amiga basically to do desktop publishing. And of course, it, it was a Batman. It was called the Batman pack and it came with a bunch of games. I think it was New Zealand Story, Batman and uh, Hornet. And um, brilliant, you know, and, and I just started playing and playing. Yeah, it was a huge leap forward, huge leap forward. And you used to buy the extra 500 megabytes, uh, like it was like a metal block that you put in the bottom of the computer that gave you um, the extra power. Sorry, 500K, so it gave you a megabyte of power. And it was just amazing. It's crazy to think about what you could do with a megabyte back then, isn't it? It is, absolutely, absolutely. You know, and, and then the Amiga started running um, demos for games like Shadow of the Beast and things like that. And we'd never seen that kind of um, sideways scrolling and that before, you know, so smooth. And uh, it just it just opened it up. It was, uh, it was a whole new world because before then, games were very much um, just emulating the more basic stuff you had in the arcade. You know, you, you had your Galaxians and your, and your Asteroids and things like that in the arcades. And then when you got it on the home machines, it was just that little bit more simple and unexciting again. But uh, when the Atari 
Atari ST and then the Commodore Amiga came out, you know, we, we had a real idea of what we were going to be able to do. And, uh, and that was it. You couldn't get us out of the bedrooms. So um, how did this lead to you kind of doing games reviews and publishing? Well, what it was, was like I said, I bought the Amiga um, basically to do desktop publishing. Um, and um, at the time, uh, there was a number of mail order clubs. Uh, you've got to remember there was no internet or anything back then. So uh, mail order was the way forward. And uh, I joined a mail order club so I could get my games on the cheap. And um, the, the, you, you joined a club and you had a choice of subscriptions. And one of the subscriptions was uh, a club called Confidential, which was uh, role-playing games, which I was very into at the time. So um, I joined up with that and I got, I got the magazine through. And it was good, um, but it wasn't great. It, um, it, it definitely could do with a bit of razzmatazz and I, I, I kept getting the magazines through and then they were advertising for a deputy editor in this magazine, subscription magazine. At the time I was living in a converted bus and we were traveling around the country with the fairgrounds and the carnivals. And when we got to London, I got off the bus and went for the job at a company called Intermediates, uh, got the job, moved up there a couple of weeks later, lived in the back of my, lived in my mini uh, for a couple of days until I found some, somewhere to live. And um, within a year I was their publishing manager. Oh, wow. So I also saw that you were um, working with Special Reserve, who were the games order company at the time. That's it. Special Reserve was owned by Intermediates. Intermediates was the name of the whole company, and Special Reserve was the uh, department within Intermediates. It was um, co-owned by Tony Rainbird, who was behind um, Firebird Software, I believe. Uh, and um, he co-owned it with Anita Sinclair, who was Clive Sinclair's niece. I believe, and they both co-owned it. And uh, at the time, it was the big. She, she was running Magnetic Scrolls, and uh, at the time, it became the biggest mail company in Europe. I mean, the business we were doing was colossal. Um, and then to add to that, we produced these three different magazines. There was NRG, High Energy, and Confidential, and they went out to subscribers. All of them had a different angle to them, and um, we, we had stories and features in there, and characters, and um, and lots of reviews. And it helped sell. It helped sell the software, obviously. But for the rest of us, it was giving us a real taste of reviewing and um, a real insight into the industry and a huge contact book, which came in really handy. Well, as if you weren't busy enough back then, Dave, you also got involved in um, really the first mainstream uh, gaming television program. Lots of our audience, I'm sure, will remember you from Games Master. Um, how did that come about then? How did you get involved in that show? Well, Games Master, um, I was at, um, like I said, I was at Special Reserve. And uh, we'd been, we, we were launching about three, ma we were doing about three magazines at the time. I was speaking to a number of different uh, contacts at software companies and uh, someone said, uh, there's a company called Hewlett International who are thinking about putting a TV show about video games. At the time, there'd, there'd been nothing like it. There was no TV shows on video games. Um, they said, they're looking for a games expert. Uh, would you be interested? You know, we, we, we mentioned your name to them and I'm like, yeah, 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 sure. You know, put, put me through. So, um, uh, Hewlett International sorted out some interviews in uh, Isle of Dogs, Canary Wharf. So I, I trundled off down there, got the gig, and then handed in my notice at Special Reserve, um, and then went to work for Hewland as part of um, a five-man team they set up to launch the country's first ever video game show, which was Games Master. What were the struggles of bringing a, a video game show to TV then? Well, the struggle initially that Jane Hewland had, who was the boss of Hewland International, I believe, was just getting people to believe in it. And it's, yeah, the problem is still there. You know, people still don't believe in the video games industry. Um, now it's a bit of a, a joke. It's a multi-billion pound industry. It's the biggest youth phenomenon of the last two decades. And yet um, the TV companies don't believe in it enough 
uh, to get behind it with, with programming. So, so Jane did an amazing job to convince them. Um, and then problems, there were so many problems. Um, we had to work out how we were going to take games that were basically geared up for days and days and days of gaming and find challenges that would fit within two hours, uh, two minutes, sorry, two minutes, two and a half minutes each time, um, and then could be reset to the start again for the next challenger. Um, they ha also had to be visually interesting, um, not too controversial. And it was very hard because gaming and the games industry was not set up for being used in this format. And then we were trying to find, we had to find out um, uh, what prizes to give, what accolades do you give people. Um, Channel 4 and various channels have very stringent rules about the, the value money of prizes you can give to people. So initially we were sorting out arcades, holidays, things like that, arcade machines, holidays. And um, then we were told that they were all too expensive. We couldn't give them out. So we had to find an accolade. Then we had to find a presenter. Then we had to work, you know, the, the, the director and the producer had to work out how the show was going to run. There was no precedent. It had never been done before. Uh, we had a complete blank canvas, um, but people had faith in us to make it work and to bring it off. Um, and we did. I've always wondered as well about, um, you might be able to tell us a bit more about this, the challenges on Games Master. How fair were they? I've read some stuff on forums, that, um, the stories of like lads who, that were on the show that said they won a game and they might have to do a retake where their sister actually won when they watched it back on TV. Was there any of that going on? That was in the first ever show, wasn't it? That was in the first ever season, uh, series one, I believe. Um, I think the challenge you're talking about is on Road Rash. And I think this chap played his sister and he won. And then they made it, they made them play it again or whatever, and it was shown as her winning um, because I don't think they'd had a female winner yet on the show or something. I can't remember it exactly. Long time ago, you know, over 20 years ago now. Um, but that did happen from time to time. Um, we had a contestant come on who was brilliant um, in practice and at the studio with collecting rings in Sonic the Hedgehog, um, and he completely blew it. He, he, he failed his first attempt. But that didn't look good for television, so it had to be reshot. Otherwise, the viewers at home weren't going to be able to see the full extent of the levels. Um, so television is a, is, is a weird beast, and it's something I struggled with the whole time I worked in it. I, I worked for about eight years in TV, and um, the thing I struggled with was that the, the, the television show is way more important um, than, than sometimes the fairness to people. And it was a lot of it was about you know, getting a good show because... You, know, you had to make sure that the people at home were getting to see something that they enjoyed. And yeah, sometimes, some, sometimes I think some people did get a bit of a harsh deal, but we, we always tried to make sure everybody had a good time when they came on the show. You couldn't dish out those golden joysticks to everybody, could you? Well, we only had 20 for the first show, 19 or 20, so we couldn't have 19 or 20 more winners. <laughs> <laughs> and where did the um, idea of the golden joystick come from? Was it just literally a joystick spray-painted gold? Was it a che cheetah joystick, I think it looked like? Right. The, go the joystick um, that was given out was the, I think it was a Quick Joy or Quick Shop, Quick Joy, I think. Um, it was produced by Spectra Video. And um, I had a very good friend at Spectra Video called Richard Secular. Basically, uh, when we found out we couldn't give the prizes out, we didn't know what to do. So rather than work in a vacuum, I sat down at my desk and phoned around a number of soft codes and spoke to people and peripheral manufacturers and told them, yeah, you because know, I had to call everyone back and say we couldn't accept their prizes. I said, you know, the problem we're having is we can only have a certain prize value of a Channel 4. We need an accolade. And um, Richard Secular and Spectra Video, what they had been doing was two uh, shop chains that were selling their joysticks. Uh, the best, the highest sales in every store every month, um, they would give a golden joystick to the manager. 
and they had all these golden joysticks they hadn't they had made up uh, painted gold um, the inner workings were still in them on the first season uh, but the wires were cut out and they were inside a plastic uh, presentation case and he said I've got 19 to 20 of these sat in a warehouse we're not using them anymore how would they do brilliant I said well send me some, send me one over and I'll take a look um, they sent it over to me I took it to the uh, took it to uh, the, the management team and um, they loved it and there, there the golden joystick was was uh, born I think that has actually stuck in people's memories more than giving away like an arcade experience or whatever, even like 20, 25 years on. People always remember the golden joystick from Games Master, don't they? It's like a crystal from the Crystal Maze. Yeah, and you know, there are only, only so many of them. I mean, over the years, obviously, more and more were given out. But like I say, on the first show, there's only 19 or 20 of them. And uh, yeah, what a, what a wonderful idea. It just absolutely hit the nail on the head. And you know when you've had a good idea and you know when um, you've come up with a solution to a problem that absolutely works, when... The longer you think about it, the better it gets. Have you got any then still? I did have one. Um, I was presented with one um, by the Games Master team at the end of the first season. Uh, I decided to leave television and go back to uh, magazine work. I've been offered a job with Paris at Paragon Publishing, which was a new publishing company setting up a magazine called Sega Pro. And um, I decided to go back to journalism. And uh, the team took me out and the editor, uh, who was Cameron McAllister and the uh, producer, Adam Wood, presented me with the very last of the golden joysticks from the original batch. So I had that, you know, to acknowledge my work on the show and, and myself as being the person who uh, came up with the golden joystick in the first place, if you like. And uh, so they gave me that one. Um, but, I, but I sold it last year. Oh, no way. <laughs> yeah. Did you get some good money on eBay for it? <laughs> <laughs> I did an eBay. I eBayed a lot of games and that. I, basically, I moved house last year. And I had, uh, I basically always, I always thought I would one day have this mega games room in this house. And, and I had loads of collectibles, very rare things that I'd won over the years and uh, had been given by companies. Um, jackets from Games World, uh, joystick from, from Games Master, things like that. And I thought I was good. To, uh, and games machines, every kind of games machine the company had sent me, companies had sent me through the years. And uh, I just eBayed the lot in the end. I just thought, I'm never going to do it. I'm never, I'm never going to set it, set it all up now. Um, and so in the move, I eBayed, I eBayed all my software and my video games machines. And, um, and then some, a private collector actually contacted me for the joystick. So that was fine. Oh, was that hard to get, let go of then? Or? It, was, it was initially because yeah, I told people I was going to sell it. And, and the thing is, in your mind, you think it's just sat in a back room. I'm not doing anything with it. Mm -hmm. Someone's offered me a decent amount of money for it. Um, I'd rather it went to someone where it would be really... I knew this guy was a serious collector, so I knew the thing would be looked after. So I thought, well, as long as it's gonna, someone's going to appreciate it, then that's fine. Um, but then people start saying to you, uh, really? You're really going to let go of that? You know, you And you start, you start double thinking, don't you? You start <laughs> doubting yourself. But, um, but yeah, it, in the end, it was OK. I, I was happy it went to a serious collector. Well, getting back to your uh, early involvement in Games Master then, were you on board before Dominic came along then? Oh, yeah. We screen tested. I was involved in the screen testing. And um, we screen tested a lot of presenters before Dominic came along for his screen test. Well, we didn't know what we wanted once again. We, we wanted somebody quirky, um, uh, but, but definitely wanted somebody who was into the subject matter um, and um, appreciated what we were trying to do. So we were kind of looking for a quirky, geeky sort of person, I guess. 
Um, Dominic has famously admitted in the past that he wore a, he deliberately wore a gaming watch. Back then, we had there were some watches that were out, and you could play like Space Invaders or Centipede or something on them. And um, he deliberately wore one to his screen test to emphasise uh, how much he was into gaming and that. So you know, a shrewd move. Yeah. Was um, Dexter into uh, gaming at all? I'm not sure whether he was in, into gaming at all. He, um, I think, like everyone, by the time season three came across, came along when, when Dexter became involved. Of course, the world had gone gaming crazy, and um, I think everybody pretty much had a games console. You know, everybody of that kind of age had a games console at home that they played with their mates and everything. And I think he social gamed. Um, I don't think he was a hardcore gamer at all. Um, but he was brought in for for a different angle, wasn't he? He was brought in because you know, in the early days, we were doing quite a, a culty thing, and we wanted to create our own buzz. By season three, after Dominic had gone from season two, I think the show had some momentum, and I think the people behind the show kind of wanted an established name. It's like, you know, Leicester City at the moment doing really well with Jamie Vardy up front. Um, but, it, you know, if, if they won the Premiership two years on the trot to keep the whole thing going, they might go out and try and sign a real big-name striker to back him up, you know. People behind the show wanted somebody with um, a kind of a youth following. Is there any truth in the uh, the rumour that Dominic actually left because of a McDonald's sponsorship that he didn't agree with? Dominic has said many times... In magazines and papers now, I think that, that yeah, I, I think that was one of the reasons he left. I think he, he, he disagreed with the uh, sponsorship of the show. Um, it's, it's often been said that you and Dominic um, may have had a strained relationship as, as the show went on. Did you, um, did you get on with him then personally? Well, with Dominic, we, we got on very well initially. Um, obviously, you know, I, I was part of his screen test. I, I played the co-host in his screen test to, to sort of like help help him through with the game facts while he was concentrating on selling himself as a presenter. Um, and uh, we got on great. And Dominic, would, you know, it was the first show. We didn't, like I say, we didn't really know what we were doing. We were, we were making up to it along. Dominic spent a lot of time in the uh, in the offices with us, going through challenges, seeing what worked, what didn't, because he was interested in all the games that were coming in and everything, of course. And uh, we got on great. And um, we got on, and, and, and I've got some lovely pictures, actually, that I've never published. I will get published one day, I guess, uh, of... The, um, the winding up party at the end of the first season of Games Master and us all going out for a curry together and everything. Um, and then season two came along. For season two, I was no longer part of the team. I'd, I'd gone off and gone back into the magazine world and I was invited to come back and be a co-host on the show again. Um, and something happened on season two and we haven't spoken about it because obviously we, we don't speak. Um, and um, I don't know what happened. But something changed on season two, and he started taking exception to me for some reason. And um, I've never found out why. You just know when somebody has just got the hunt with you a little bit. I didn't notice it too much through season two, but it seemed it seemed to be after season two. You know, things changed. I, I, you hear things, and you pick up a vibe. And I wasn't too sure what was going on. It didn't bother me too much because I was I was in doing the filming, and I was gone. But then um, then season two, he left. Um, Season three, Dexter came in, and uh, halfway through season three, they contacted me and asked me if I would come and be a full-time co-presenter with Dexter when they did the challenge in the London Dungeons. And I came back and did that, you know, it helped keep the show going because it was struggling. Um, and then um, I don't know whether that was an issue for him. Uh, and maybe, maybe he felt, you know, I was, you know, taking, go, siding with the enemy or something. I don't know. 
I think it kind of all came to a heat. Um, you know, the, the one thing that a lot of people talk about when um, remembering Games Master is the... Uh, the um, Nintendo 64 Mario bust-up that happened. Mario Gate. <laughs> yeah, Mario Gate. What happened then from your perspective? There'd been a build-up. Um, you know, I think it's season four. Uh, if you see some episodes of season four, Dominic is making faces behind my back when I'm talking to the camera and things like that. These, these are things I wasn't aware of, but I got told of afterwards. Um, there were rumours that he didn't want me on the show anymore, which is, which is okay, you know, but, but still the production company kept asking me. So anyway, season six... Usually every year, we, we really looked forward to having a Christmas special um, because we've got some celebrities on. And uh, even though we were on TV two, three nights a week, whatever, with the game shows, we never felt like celebrities. And, you know, you, you always look forward to what celebrities were coming on the show. And um, so season six was going to be different. They wanted to have a kind of a quiz. I, I don't know whether Dominic fancied trying himself out as more of a, you know, a show host or whatever, but they wanted to have a quiz. They wanted to have it between the four main hosts on that show, so fine. Um, but at this time, I was no longer working um, in the games magazine industry. I was now in, in the games industry two-footed. I joined THQ, and I was uh, working on the, uh, in, in charge of European marketing for them. Um, and uh, they phoned me up and asked me if I would come and do this Christmas challenge. And I wasn't too keen, to be honest with you. I didn't really want to do it. Um, my boss at the time wasn't too keen on me doing it, but uh, I agreed. Uh, we went along and I agreed basically on the principle that the final would be decided on a neutral game. Um, and um, the director, Johnny Finch, uh, sorry, producer Johnny Finch, um, told me that Cygnosis were putting together a new level for the new Wipeout game or something. So, so that's fine. That's a good game. Um, but when I got there, um, there was a just a weird atmosphere. Um, me and Dominic had a falling out because he thought I he, apparently he said I'd ask for some questions um, to get the answers, and then and then when I got to the green room, everybody was playing Mario sixty four, and uh, there was a bottle of champagne there, and everyone was having a drink and playing Mario sixty four. And I'm I walk in, hi everyone, you know I've got my girlfriend with me, and um, you know why is everyone playing Mario sixty four? Oh well, this is going to be the game for the, the final game. All right, that's not what I've been told. Um, two points there. One, I'd never played on Nintendo 64. Um, and two, I had spoken out, I think it was around October, November, in CTW, which is Computer Trade Weekly, um, about how I would never play on Mario on the Nintendo uh, until it was released officially in the country, because I felt that the Nintendo 64, the Ultra 64, as it was called at the time, was destroying Christmas sales for um for the companies because people weren't buying the consoles because they were saving their money for the Nintendo, which I think was out in January or February probably, um, after Christmas. So made it very clear that I hadn't played this game. So I thought, well, why is it suddenly been switched to this? And then we got to the uh, and then we got into the green room practicing and, it, and I asked Derek and I asked Rick if they'd played the game and they hadn't really. You know, Rick had briefly seen it. I don't think Derek had played it. And um, Kirk was there and he was playing the game. And, it was suddenly admitted that he'd been playing it for the last three months because he was working on the uh, he was working on um, some levels or something for the software company he was working for for I believe it was the development of Earthworm Jim 3D. So anyway, he'd played the game extensively. So I I said to the I said to the producer, well, this is not what I was promised. It's not a neutral game. And he said to me, don't worry, he won't get into the final. I said, but you know, if he does. It's got to be a neutral game. He said, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, but don't worry, it won't happen. So after about half an hour, they talked me into carrying on with the show. So we did the show. Um, I pretty much won every round, I think. Um, despite one round, they put a, a jokey end on something where you're supposed to guess what happens next. 
I got it right, but they changed the joke at the end to make me get it wrong. But that's okay. That's just fun and games. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden, I think the last round was a quick fire round. And I can't remember all the questions, but certainly an Earthworm Jim question came up. I think it was like, name this music. And it was from Earthworm Jim. Convenient. <laughs> yeah. And suddenly Kirk, who, is Dominic, who was Dominic's best friend at the time, is in the final. Um, and I'm smelling a rat at this point. Um, yeah, whether I'm right or not, I don't know, but, but it's all wrong. So I go to the producer and I said, you know, okay, you know, he has got in the finals. Can we have a neutral game? And, uh, and at, at this point, it was nearly six o'clock. And, and once you go over six o'clock, um, the cameramen are double time, the lighting men are double time. And he was like, no, yeah, we could, everything's going to run over. You know, we can't, we haven't got the budget. We're going to have to do this now. We don't have another game ready. I got two options. I, I do this or I walk. And they let me know um, that if I walked, I wouldn't be able to use the car that had brought me. We were filming on some industrial state in the middle of London. I'm not sure where it was, but a car had picked me up from Epsom and driven me there with my girlfriend. And um, that was, it was taking me home. But basically, I was, st I was stuck there. There was no taxis or anything out there. So I was like, right, OK, sod it. I'll play. I've won 100 challenges before all over Europe. I'll, I'll, I'll play this and um, maybe I'll do all right. So I played it. And of course, the Nintendo 64, I'd not used it before. It's got, um, the joypad was completely unique. It had a trigger underneath. It had an analog joystick, which, which was very twitchy until you got used to it. And we were playing uh, a level with a lot of inertia. So trying to compensate for the inertia with a small analog thumb joystick, it was, it was, I just couldn't, I couldn't get the hang of it. And, um, and that was it. I, ca I came off the side. I tried to reach a, a slide that was lower down. I could see a, a slide lower down. I didn't know if I could get onto it. No, I tried to make that happen to keep myself in the game for a few more seconds because it was a time challenge, but I couldn't. And then at that point, I threw the joystick across the room and, um, and that was that. I had a bit of a paddy. What was the atmosphere like when uh, the camera stopped rolling then? Do you remember? Uh, it was not good. It was not good. I, I don't remember exactly. Someone tells me you know, security saw me out, something like that. I don't, I don't remember. I just remember I just wanted to do what was right and finish the show. At that point, I told them I would never, ever do another show for them. And that was for, for Games Master. Um, and that was it. And I just felt very badly stabbed in the back. I, I, you know, even, even if I'm wrong, even if it wasn't set up that way, there still should have been a neutral game in a playoff final. And they knew it wasn't neutral because everyone had drawn their attention to the fact it wasn't neutral. And um, I just wanted a fair crack of the whip. And I, I felt, as I said on, at the time, I felt set up. I felt so, I just felt the whole thing was wrong. And um, everyone was dancing around and that. And if you if you ever look at if you look at the footage, I mean, it's on bloody every month on mm -hmm. bad bad TV of the nineties, I think. <laughs> and um, I'm stood right over the other side of the stage. I'm stood by myself. I'm not stood with anybody. And as soon as the camera stopped rolling, I was off. I was gone. Yeah. And that's the last Games Master saw of me. I, I never went back. Yeah, you didn't look happy. I've got to say. Well, um... no, no, no. Absolutely <laughs> pissed off. You know, hindsight should have walked off the set. Mm -hmm. Hindsight should have behaved better um, and then it wouldn't have been such a big thing but because because I made such a because I made such a fuss of it with my face but I was upset and I couldn't I couldn't hide it you know well looking back on those days I mean would you say you had a, an all-time favorite video game system then of that era favorite game system of all time if I could um, set it up and play on it every day Commodore Amiga Without doubt, the original Commodore Amiga. I'd go back to that in a heartbeat. I don't know if you know, but we're a very Amiga-centric podcast, so that's <laughs> great to hear. It definitely wouldn't be the N64. <laughs> I, I, I'd take a shit on an N64. <laughs> N64. 
Um, no, no, definitely, a, definitely a Commodore Amiga with uh, Draken or Dragon's Breath. Or um, I was a huge fan of the Anko Kickoff series and Player Manager series, Final Whistle, all of that. Loved those games. Oh yeah, there's a there's still kickoff competitions going on these days, actually. Is there really? Yeah, kickoff too. <laughs> oh my god, I would pl- I, I I'd play that in a heartbeat if I could get hold of a competition pro extra joystick as well. I'd, I'd be in heaven. I, well, I, I, I love that game. I was more of a zipstick boy. Oh, zipstick—they're they're a little <laughs> bit too lightweight for me. You know, they, they were a little bit more sensitive. Whereas the competition pro, you had to really give it a yank, and I like that. I, when, I, when I was playing, I like to really throw myself into it. Whereas the zipsticks were just. They clicked a bit, didn't they? When you went left, right, you know, micro switches, you feel yeah. It yeah, yeah, that's it. Whereas the Competition Pro was 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 based around a heavy rubber disc, which you really had to force. Which was uh, which are, I loved those joysticks. I kept mine. I kept both my my Amiga my Amiga joysticks, Competition Pro. Um, I had a fluorescent pink one and the, tra- the standard translucent base one with the red joystick handle on it and um when i when i had a big clear out on my house like i say last year when i was moving um i dug all these things out and they'd gone a bit moldy and everything i hadn't looked after them very well so i had to bin them it was a shame because once again in my head romantically i always thought i was one day going to get this amiga together and get my pro extras out and, and go again but but no well one thing i always liked about games master was long after the amiga collapsed they were still talking about it definitely um just, uh, I think it was, we, we were very positive on it. It was, it was a big machine for all of us. And certainly I would have talked about it because I just, just love that machine. Do you remember when the uh, first PlayStation came along? What was your impression of that when you first saw it? PlayStation, let me just think. Yeah. Um, obviously, we were all a little bit reticent at first uh, because Sega had tried to uh, catch the jump with that, I think, with uh, things like the Mega CD and uh, Wonder Mega and various devices that had used CDs. And um, so CD-based gaming, everyone was a little bit cautious about it, excited because of the quality of the graphics and that, but but a little bit worried. And then when the PlayStation came along, brilliant. It was just, uh, just so exciting. It just looked like it was the next wave. It, it looked like it was something special. The joypad, um, the, the machine itself just looked incredible. Um, that and the Saturn. Uh, it was just a wonderful time. You just felt after after all the little false starts with the um, the Mega Thirty Two um, little bolt on used to stick on top of the Mega Drive oh, yeah. and the various Mega CD versions and the uh, Commodore C sixty C thirty two or whatever it was. I can't there was remember. a new system out like every six weeks at that point, wasn't there? Oh, there was stuff. <laughs> there was. I'm trying to. I'm desperately trying to pull things together in my head. Yeah, there was stuff coming out left, right, and center, and then. Um, I think shortly afterwards that there was the uh, there was the 3DO and the Philips CDI and um, but the the PlayStation was perfect um, and what I particularly liked and I think what what particularly helped it is when it first came out on import the the hoops we had to we had to jump through to get games to play uh, absolutely that that brilliant you had to um, you used to stick a a bit of blue tack and a pen lid in the lid. Um, and switch over an official game um, <laughs> after the boot sequence had gone in, and then put the other one in quickly to get it to play on, you know, on, on the um, import machines and everything. You had to time it right, didn't you? <laughs> you had to time it just right. And the thing is, although companies tend to hate that kind of thing, uh, it works wonders for machines because 
it, it creates an interaction between user and machine as a bonding process, if you like. And, 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 and you know, some of us do bond with our machines. You know, sounds a bit naff to say it, but we just do. And um, I remember poor, 10 years ago or so when the PSP came out um, and there was a lot of uh, homebrew software being developed for it. And, um, and, and people were eating that up and putting it on the PSP because the system was, was so open that you could manipulate it, and people loved that. And gradually, Sony shut it down and kept, and kept putting um, updaters on it that gradually shut everyone out of the system. And it was a shame because when you could interfere with it and manipulate with it, manipulate it, um, it was a fantastic piece of kit because uh, we all like to, to have a little play around. We don't really like to be told what we can and can't do. And if you can actually interact with your hardware on that level. Um, you feel a little bit more involved. Well, looking back on your career um, throughout the, the 90s in particular, Dave, I mean, you know, you, you were a magazine publishing, you like Mega Pro, Mega Power, Games World magazine, obviously Games Master on TV. Do you ever kind of miss the uh, pre-internet days of gaming? Definitely. Definitely. I, like everyone else, I use the internet now without thinking. Um, you know, I'm using it now. But it has taken away so much innovation, I believe, um, because people used to have to work out how to do things. People had to work at making contacts. You know, the, the community was closer because we had to use phones. We had to get in the car and drive to meet developers. We had to, we had to actually make an effort to get together, whereas now everything is just pinged around on email, and um, th those relationships are nowhere near as good. Plus, an internet magazine, an online magazine, an online website will never, ever, ever, ever have the relationship with its readership that a printed magazine had in my opinion in my opinion you know that waiting every month every four weeks for the new issue to come out to see what was in it absolutely magical just just clicking a button now and getting all the latest news within seconds it's just not the same yeah that's why we kind of like the uh podcast format because people can wait every week and listen to us and, and they get to know you as well yeah 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 definitely I was just wondering, are you still involved in the gaming world at all? No, not at all. I don't have anything to do with it now, apart from, you know, at home, I, I, still, uh, I still play a little bit, an Xbox 360. I don't have the latest one. Um, on principle, because I think the name is crap. It is awful, isn't it? Xbox One. You know, no, it's not. <laughs> I remember Xbox. I remember the first Xbox. This is an Xbox One. Oh, we're trying to be clever. It's Xbox and it's all encompassing. Is it really? It's not that clever, is it? It's a bit confusing. So I'm not going to buy that. Too much money. Too much money. When, when they want half a grand for a machine when it first comes out, forget it. It's taking the fun out of it. So um, no, I haven't got. I haven't got that one. And the PlayStation Four. Just not that bothered. I just don't. I don't need those games so much. I mean, it's just, I've seen them all before. It's all been done before, you know. I don't, I don't want to pay 500 quid to play rehashed, slightly nicer looking versions of games I've already played, albeit under another name, but it's, it's all the same. I'm not going to spend that kind of money. I'm happy with my 360. 360's a good machine. There's a nice, nice lot of software out there and the games are good. I'm happy to play that. Um, PC, love playing on the PC, or did love playing on the PC until Steam came along. Um, and Steam soured PC games playing for me completely, put me right off. Lots of games I was playing as part of a series. Um, once I had to go and log on with Steam and download bits of it with Steam, and yeah, I'm not interested. If I go into a shop and I spend £40 on a game, 
I want to own that game. I want to take it home and I want to be able to play it. If I have to take it home, then I have to wait in a queue to register it before I can play it. I'm not, I'm not, they're not having my £40. That's, that, that's just ruined it for me. I thought that before as well. We've we said it on the show with digital downloads. It's kind of when the servers go. That's your game library gone, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. If I've, yeah, I'm not saying I, own the, the, I want to own the rights to the game. I'm not saying I want to be able to redistribute it or whatever. But if I, I've paid 40 quid, I've paid 40 quid for the ability to go home and play that game on my machine when I want, where I want. And, you know, if I've then got to go online and I've got to have the internet and I've got to do this, I've got to do that. It's too fussy. I don't want to do that. I don't want to work that hard. <laughs> so what are you doing full time these days then, Dave? These days I tattoo. Um, tattooing is something I started uh, many, many, many years ago. Um, and I put on a back burner when I got into television work um, because it didn't really work side by side. Um, tattooing when I started wasn't seen as being a particularly good or nice trade. Um, these days it's viewed completely different. We're, you know, we're seen more as artists. And uh, I think around 2007, um, I sold my publishing company. And um, at that point, I just decided enough was enough. I, I, when I set up my own company, Predator Publishing, in 1999, um, I deliberately stayed away from the games industry. I launched a movie magazine called DVD Monthly. Um, I then started editing a magazine called Diesel Car Magazine, so I went to the car industry as well. I deliberately stayed away from gaming, and then I just had enough of magazines. I mean, the internet just killed print. You know, the sales were coming down. Um, the distribution for magazines has become horrendous. The, the kind of money that Smiths and, and other chains want just to put your magazines on their shelves. Um, the whole the whole industry changed for me, and I found I was I was sitting behind Excel spreadsheets, shifting figures, and I didn't want to. I wanted to go back to being creative. Um, so um, I, I sold my magazines to, uh, to to another publisher who was interested in them, and I took that money and reinvested in myself, if you like, and uh, went back into tattooing and then opened my own studio. Have you uh, had any customers with retro gaming tattoos at all? Haven't had any retro gaming tattoos. Um, no, I well, Pac-Man and things like that. So lots of people, I've done Pac-Man and uh, Space Invader icons, things like that, but nothing, nothing major. I've had people come into the shop to have their picture taken with me because mm -hmm. oh. they've heard that I'm here and I'm doing tattoo. And I had one guy come all the way from Scotland, and it wasn't Dominic, um, <laughs> come all the way with a bandana. Um, so that I could shine the bandana for him and then he wanted me to put the bandana on so he could have his picture taken with me and he was a fan of the old show and everything I think they were probably coming down on holiday or something because we were a seaside town and he'd heard I was here and he, he, he made it his mission to come in and get his picture taken and there's been a, quite a few of those and I have a few customers who remember Games Master and Games World and um, they love to, you know, if people want to talk about it I'll talk about it whilst I'm tattooing them, I, I don't mind it I don't bring it, I don't bring it up, I've not I've not sold my studio or myself based on what I used to do. I don't want to become Alan Partridge. <laughs> do you still wear the bandanas? No. <laughs> no, not at all. I didn't want to wear them towards the end. Um, but Jane Hewlin said to me, you know, you, you should never let go of such a distinctive trademark. And uh, with hindsight, she's absolutely right. You know, people, it's what people remember. People, it's silly. People, people talk about retro gaming and retro gaming TV. And at some point, they always talk about the guy in the bandana. They, they remember the character uh, that I was in that, that, that time, you know, of all the journalists on TV. I and mean, it's interesting that there's this show on now called 
bad TV of the 90s. And I always get tons of people send me emails. Oh, you're on telly, you're on telly. And it's like, yeah, yeah, I know I know what that'll be. <laughs> and uh, it's always that the N64 meltdown. And, um, you know, it, it, it's funny, 20 years on, that's still getting shown. But no one else involved in it gets mentioned. They never mention, they never mention Dominic's name. They never mention the other um, contestants' names. They never mention the film, the, the film company. They never mention anything. They only ever mention my name. Um, all right, because I'm the guy having the meltdown, but also because it was a distinctive image. Well, Dave, obviously, you know, like you said, then you've got a new life now. You've moved on from those days. But I've got to say, it's two guys that grew up watching Games Master. Uh, it's been amazing to get your insights and get your stories about the old days. And uh, hopefully you've enjoyed a little bit of reminiscing with us. Yeah, yeah. Like I say, I love it. You know, those those were great, great, great days. Um, su- you know, superb. Did I look back on it now. And at the time, I just felt incredibly lucky. I never for one minute um, thought it would be as important as it seems to have been to, to a great many people. And I never for one minute thought I was going to make a living out of it. Um, I never had an agent. I never had a publicist. All these things that people now, you know, they get on one reality TV show and they've got a whole team behind them. I never had any of that. Yeah, I was on four nights a week on different channels at one point. I just felt like a very lucky guy who was bluffing his way through his 15 minutes of fame, if you like. And um, it was just, it's, it's just great now that people like yourselves still want to talk about it because it feels like we did something important. Well, Dave, thank you so much for coming on. You're welcome. Thank you. You're welcome. Thanks for asking me.